0: Oscar Wilde wrote a wonderful little cautionary tale about some fireworks that were about to be set off for a royal wedding. The fireworks actually have most of the speaking parts in the story, although a few living creatures show up at the duck ponds near the end. A rambling conversation about the wideness of the world and the death of romance commences between the Roman candle and the Catherine wheel. And a firecracker called a squib holds forth on the way travel... Travel broadens the mind and does away with our prejudices. And then, with a bid for attention in the form of a sharp, dry cough, the remarkable Rocket makes his entrance. He's actually the character for whom the whole story is named. Now, this Rocket is remarkable, we soon learn, by his own estimation, as he thinks the royal wedding is actually an occasion to celebrate the day of his own explosion, not the other way around. And what he hates more than anything, is when attention gets paid to anyone besides himself. It's a terrific premise, isn't it? Some fireworks fireworks see their purpose as to celebrate others. One, at least, thinks he's literally made to draw attention to himself. He's reveling in the ooze and the ahs he will one day attract. Well, Oscar Wilde's remarkable rocket is delightfully unsubtle in his need for attention. When he loses his train of thought in one conversation, he asks, Now what was I saying? You were talking about yourself, replies the Roman candle. Of course, I knew I was discussing some interesting subject when I was so rudely interrupted. (laughs) A little later, the firecracker says she's laughing because she's happy. And the rocket says, That's a very selfish reason. What right have you to be happy? You should be thinking about others. In fact, you should be thinking about me. I'm always thinking about myself, and I expect everybody else to do the same. By the story's end, we're not entirely surprised, or disappointed, really, to find our little rocket sinking into the mud by the duck pond, trying to convince a dragonfly and a frog of his remarkableness. And shortly before he literally fizzles out, he tells the dragonfly, I'm not going to stop talking to the frog merely because he pays no attention. I like hearing myself talk. It's one of my greatest pleasures. I often have long conversations all by myself, and I'm so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I'm saying. (laughs) That story reminds me in a way of the one over in Luke where a Pharisee looks over at a tax collector and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's equally unsubtle. The danger in both stories may be that the characters are so one-dimensional that we might not recognize anything of ourselves and the bad guys. But sometimes stark pictures may be just what we need to name something in us or in our world that we keep ignoring or justifying or explaining away. Don't worry, I know the gospel's not from Luke 8 today. But as I was reading our passage from Acts this week, I'd been thinking about attention. Who in your world expects to receive attention? Who's expected to give it? Who deserves more than they get? And who will never be satisfied no matter how much attention they receive? What Social structures and sets of expectations determine who has to pay attention to whom. Which is really just another way of establishing who matters more, is it not? What is deference, after all, but submission to a kind of hierarchy of attention? Now, you're probably still confused what any of this has to do with eating with uncircumcised people or Peter's vision of a small herd of non-kosher animals being lowered from heaven on a sheet. And I'm guessing more than a few of you have decided this sermon probably isn't worth giving your attention to today. But, <laughs> but the story we just read from Acts 11 is also not very subtle. And neither is the fact that I am indisputably a Gentile. Now, if you happen to be a Gentile, too, I want you to sit with this simple, obvious, difficult fact for just a minute. Christians are so used to aligning ourselves with the insiders in the Bible stories, right? And a lot of us Christians are wealthy and powerful in this particular time and place. But the primary kind of attention Jesus' disciples would have been used to paying to the likes of us was suspicion. We're the ones it was hard for the first Jewish Christians to wrap their minds around including. We're the foreign ones. We're the unclean ones. Another way a modern Gentile Christian can distort the New Testament is to think that those Jews were just dying to be delivered from the constraints of the law. I would think Peter would be thrilled to suddenly get to attend the Memphis in May barbecue contest, but that's probably just a measure of how disconnected I am from this story by virtue of the culture I've been formed in. Read the story again. Peter doesn't feel liberated. He's a little terrified. He's a little disgusted by the vision. He says he's never let anything profane or unclean enter his mouth. I'm guessing that on a gut level, having all foods be declared clean to Peter was about what it would be like for you and me to be told it's now perfectly fine to eat horse meat. Now I've got your attention, don't I? I'm actually not being just being cute. If you can stomach it, endure this little thought experiment for another minute. Being the open, inclusive, welcoming folks we try to be at Calvary, let's imagine someone from a faraway country joining Calvary and showing up at the next potluck dinner with a pot of roast horse. Do you still think we're beyond cultural hang-ups about clean and unclean foods? Still think being inclusive is easy if you're just a reasonably decent Christian person. I don't think we can read Acts 11 meaningfully until we're in this uncomfortable frame of mind. Rather, unless our stomach's churning a little uncomfortable at this deep, culturally formed revulsion. But then if you're a Gentile like me, we actually have to go one step further. We have to remember that we're the ones who just brought the wrong meat to the potluck. We're the revolting ones. Were the ones that's going to take a whole lot more than good manners to welcome fully into the household of God. And here's why I wanted to introduce the question of attention into the story. I think attention works in the same way, doesn't it? Who gets attention is culturally determined to a large extent, and it works on a deep instinctual level that we rarely acknowledge consciously. There are also all kinds of shared values and power structures embedded in the ways we give and receive our attention in the world. So imagine now, and no more horse horse meat, I promise, imagine now that John Morant or Justin Timberlake or, I don't know, Julie Andrews walked into this room since we're doing J names. To be a celebrity is to command attention. It's a form of power that's culturally formed and transmitted, isn't it? And even with no formal rules about how deference should be paid by the likes of us to the likes of them, we'd pay them plenty of it, if only by trying our best not to stare at them for the rest of the service. But even if we're not celebrities, we know when we're the person in a situation who expects to receive the attention and when we're the person expected to give it. More than 40 years ago, a sociologist named Charles Derber wrote a little book titled, The Pursuit of Attention, It began with this sentence, without attention being exchanged and distributed, there is no social life. Oscar Wilde's remarkable rocket mocked the absurd ways attention was exchanged in the late 19th century English aristocracy. A whole century later, Charles Derber worried that in a highly individualized American culture, we're we're all in a never-ending competition for attention, all the time. And remember, this was still a few decades before the invention of stuff like Facebook and reality television. So Derber's researchers observed countless hours of ordinary human interactions. In most ways, their findings were anything but surprising. They found that, children were expected to pay attention to elders in ways that elders were not obliged to pay attention to children. They also found that Oliver Wendell Holmes' characterization of the 19th century patriarch patriarch as autocrat of the breakfast table was still largely true at breakfast tables a century later. Fathers had the most latitude in deciding when and to whom they would pay attention. But they also noted that in praising women For higher levels of attention that they tend to pay in relationships compared to men, an implicit power imbalance is being sustained, probably even strengthened. Remember, the ones least obligated to pay the attention and to most expect to receive it are almost always the most powerful ones in any social interaction. Okay, that's probably more than enough 40-year-old sociology filtered through one preacher's murky understanding of it. But how many times did Jesus tell a parable or give a teaching to a powerful person in terms of wealth or influence or religious authority that exposed how the world pays attention and deference in ways that had absolutely nothing to do with the ways of God? How many times did Jesus disrupt those unspoken agreements? on behalf of the first ones to be ignored or dismissed. To whom and to what do you pay your attention? From whom do you expect attention to be paid to you? What happens when you don't receive it? Maybe for you, as for me, the answers to these questions expose how we are not being formed in this culture in anything like the way of Jesus. We're being formed maybe as remarkable rockets, competing for attention first and foremost for ourselves. And as a straight, white, educated, Christian, American man, I probably need to stay especially awake to the fact that I'm being formed to expect attention to turn quickly and often in my direction all the time. I may need to spend even more time in prayer, entering the story of Acts as a Gentile as an outsider, as a person the community would assume to be unclean, strange, worthy of only the most suspicious kind of attention, because Jesus so persistently turned his attention away from those who assumed they deserved it and directed it toward those used to going unseen. You may need to pray your way into the story differently. But since the theme is so pervasive in the Bible from the first pages to the last, I really do believe each one of us would do well to enter this story with at least some part of ourselves that we can't imagine anyone would ever welcome or pay loving attention to, especially God. Maybe we need to bring to the story our unclean Gentile outsider self, the self that may hope neither God nor good people will even notice us the self that may think we'd be better off if attention were withheld altogether. So that that self can hear the Jews in Acts 11, not only seeing the likes of us for who we are and receiving the likes of us as we are, but even offering up their astonished praise, saying, can you believe it? God has given even to those Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. In the end, there may be no one in all the cosmos that God's redeeming love in Christ doesn't notice, doesn't save, doesn't bring alive. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.